Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome to another special episode. I got a lot of great feedback from many of you listeners last season about the special episode that I did on natural building. And so this week, I'll be wrapping up the series on reforestation and agroforestry that we've been exploring since October of last year. Now, I personally learned a ton during the research for this episode, as well as from the perspectives of the people that I had the pleasure to interview. And before we start, I just want to make it clear that I got all of this information from the most reliable and up-to-date sources that I could find. But none of these statistics are my own. I'm not that kind of scientist. Uh, But for the sake of keeping this episode from sounding like I'm reading verbatim from a bibliography, I've put links to all of the articles that I pulled information from in the show notes of this episode. So I really encourage you to check out these resources because there's so much more mind-blowing information that I could fit in from sources like National Geographic and research papers from professors at Rutgers University and more. So with that out of the way, let's explore the world of forests from the beginning. So forests cover approximately 30% of the world's terrestrial surface and provide essential ecological benefits to the entire planet. They're often credited as one of the greatest defenses that we have against climate change and loss of biodiversity. Tropical forests alone are responsible for around 34% of photosynthesis occurring on land. Tropical forests are also where about 50% of all terrestrial species are found. All types of forests also store tons and tons of carbon through a complex network of methods that build on one another. The shade from tree canopies protects and cools the ground temperature of soils below, which is no small matter. It's estimated that the loss of moisture through evaporation from the surface of the soil out in the open on a windy day may be five times as great as the loss of moisture from forest soil of similar character under the protection of canopy cover. The leaf litter and mulch that forests constantly shed helps to sequester carbon in soils and creates habitat for mycelium, insects, and bacteria that build rich nutrient dispersal networks that feed all the plants around. The root networks of trees not only holds the soil in place to prevent erosion, It also allows for greater infiltration of water. Surprisingly though, the vast network of roots and their symbiotic relationship with mycelium is also how forests store most of their carbon. You might logically think that the organic matter that accumulates on the soil surface, such as leaf mulch, is what breaks down and stores most of the carbon, but most of the sequestration actually happens much deeper as fungal networks work with tree roots to exchange the minerals that they break down for simple sugars that trees produce through photosynthesis. Now, since these exchanges happen deep under the topsoil, the organic matter doesn't oxidize and instead stays buried as it breaks down into its elemental parts. To put it in perspective, the world's forests contain about 55% of the global carbon stored in vegetation 
and more than 45% of that is in the soil. The effects of forestation in preventing the freezing of soil is of major importance too in increasing the amount of water that percolates into it, particularly during the spring months. The humus layers that we think of as characteristic of any healthy forest in cold climates absorb between two to four times their weight in water. The water holding capacity of hummus-rich soils is much higher than mineral or compacted soils. Forest soil with its decaying organic layers acts as a huge sponge capable of absorbing much more water per unit area than soil out in the open. Now I could go on and on about all the services and gifts of forests from wildlife habitat, water transpiration, and seeding the clouds to increase rainfall, to say nothing of fuel and building materials and wood. One of the ecological functions that often gets credited to forests is the creation of oxygen. Now I've seen all kinds of sources that claim that the Amazon is responsible for 20% of the world's oxygen, and I believed it too. But it turns out that that's just not the way the oxygen cycle works. Trees can only produce as much oxygen as the CO2 that they take in. That would be kind of like us producing more CO2 than the oxygen that we breathe. It's, it's not how it works. And given that the percent of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, even at current elevated levels, is only about a half a percent of the air that we breathe, it's just not possible for plants to make a major contribution to the 8% of oxygen in our air. On top of that, most plants actually reabsorb oxygen at night when their leaves are not photosynthesizing in a process called cellular respiration, to the tune of just over half of the oxygen that they release during the day. When you consider all the oxygen consumed by all the animals, insects, and bacteria that forests support, the net amount of oxygen that they create is actually around zero. It's mostly a closed-loop system. The largest producers of oxygen are actually a tiny species of phytoplankton called Prochlorococcus. I think I pronounced that right. I think I've got it. These phytoplankton live near the surface of the ocean and are so small that millions can be found in just one drop of water. Unlike other plants that usually oxidize when they die or get eaten, releasing much of their embodied carbon to the atmosphere, these phytoplankton drop to the ocean floor and decompose in an anaerobic environment so their carbon is trapped below the sea. Even through these methods, it's taken millions of years of geological time to create the 8% of oxygen that we now rely on with this cycle, and even a major disruption wouldn't likely have an effect on the percentages in our atmosphere for millions of years after. The Amazon rainforest alone contributes 20% of the oxygen produced by photosynthesis on land, which may have incorrectly slipped into the public knowledge as 20% of the oxygen in the atmosphere. So even though forests may not be oxygen producers, they still have a major role to play in their effect on the atmosphere, as they do have the capacity to store huge amounts of carbon, both in their biomass and in the soils that they foster. Now, though I'll continue talking about forests in general terms throughout this episode, I want to make sure that I distinguish between the different types, because they certainly aren't all the same, and depending on what type of forest we talk about, they might behave quite differently as ecosystems. So let's start with tropical forests. Tropical forests are the ones that get a lot of press these days, and for good reason. They're among the most endangered ecosystems on our planet, and in the last few years they've been disappearing at an accelerated rate. 
These are the jungles and rainforests that occupy the area closest to the equator, mostly in South America, Central Africa, and Southern Asia. Most of the carbon pools in forest vegetation are located in tropical forests to the tune of about 62%. These are also incredibly biodiverse regions, with as much as 90% of terrestrial species living at least part of their lives here. Now, one thing that surprised me to learn about tropical forests before I visited them myself was that they're also characterized by pretty poor soil and not much of a topsoil layer at all, which you would probably think that their soils would be super rich. This is due to a number of reasons, including water access from regular rains near the surface of the soil, and because photosynthesis is so constant with their warmer climate, the nutrients that drop to the forest floor just get sucked right up by the plants and stored in the canopy. The consistent damp and warm temperatures in the tropics also accelerates decomposition, and anything left just gets eaten up by the riot of life in these ecosystems. Now, further away from the equator, you'll find temperate forests. There are a lot of subclassifications and differences within the three main categories that I'm talking about here, but we won't go into too many specifics. One type of temperate or subtropical forest that I'll mention are Mediterranean forests, which is the environment that I live in now. These are characterized by dry, arid summers and rainy winters. They tend to be dominated by pine, oak, and other drought-tolerant tree species and shrubs. Though Mediterranean forests only account for about 1.5% of the world's forests, They've served as an essential ecosystem and sources of economic exploitation by humans for thousands of years. They also register lower water retention potentials than other evergreen forests because of their kind of more arid climactic conditions and their soils. Finally, we'll move to the farthest regions from the equator where we have the boreal forests. Now, there are only two seasons here. There's a short, moist, mildly warm summer and a long, cold, dry winter. Most of the carbon pools in forest soils are located in boreal forests, accounting for 54%. They also account for the largest percentage of virgin forests left on Earth, predominantly in areas of Russia, Canada, and Alaska. The densest areas of tree coverage are also in the boreal forests near the Arctic. Despite their dense coverage, cold climates have actually just 24% of the tree species, whereas, for example, tropics and subtropic areas support 43%. The rest are distributed throughout other places, including temperate zones. The ground in the boreal forest is comprised of a very thin layer of nutrient-poor acidic soil, and the canopy lets very little light through, so there is usually little growing on the understory. Evergreen conifers with needle leaves that can stand the cold, like pine, fir, uh, spruce trees, those are what live there. Coniferous forests in general, though less biodiverse than their tropical counterparts, retain about 10% more water than broadleaf forests or mixed forests. So each one, as you can see, kind of has its own niche and ecological services. Now let's start talking about the heavy stuff, deforestation. Uh, so it turns out the state of forests all around the world in general is pretty grim. The earth loses on average 18.7 million acres of forest per year and about 15 billion, with a B, trees. 
Most of that, of course, is due to human activity. And it's estimated that about 5 billion new species are planted or sprouted annually. This ends up yielding a net loss of about 10 billion trees. So for reference, the Trillion Tree Project that has so far planted 13.6 billion trees in roughly 14 years. Now, while that's a valiant effort and we currently really need programs like this, it's not even enough to offset the deforestation of a single year. An exhaustive recent study has calculated that there are about 3 trillion trees on the planet today. Now, that sounds like a lot, but this actually represents only about 45% of the total number of trees that had existed before the rise of humans, which means that the earth has lost more than half of its trees since humans first learned how to wield an axe. Deforestation, however, is not evenly distributed. Uh, most modern deforestation is concentrated in a few key areas around the world. Countries with significant deforestation in the last few years include Brazil, Indonesia, Thailand, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as a few parts of Eastern Europe. So let's break down some of the most affected areas and some of the main drivers of forest loss. Let's start with the Amazon. Uh, Brazil, Peru, and Bolivia, representing the majority of the Amazon rainforest between them, are mostly threatened by the expansion of cattle ranching, soy monoculture production, and illegal logging. Now, for the last decade, deforestation in the Amazon had been slowing down, but in recent years, for a number of different reasons, it has seen a really rapid increase. Remember the Amazon fires from the summer of 2019? Those, of course, were mostly concentrated in these three countries. All right, Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia represents the largest rainforest in Asia and at the moment is threatened primarily by the expansion of the palm oil industry and, of course, illegal logging. Russia's forests are the largest on the planet with around 12 million square kilometers or 70% of the world's boreal forests, larger even than the Amazon rainforest. Russia's forests contain more than half of the world's conifers and represent more than 10% of all the biomass on Earth, which is staggering. It's estimated that 20,000 square kilometers are deforested each year, with areas nearer to the Chinese border being the ones most affected, since it's the main market for their timber. Deforestation in Russia is particularly unfortunate because the forests have a short growing season due to, of course, extremely cold winters, and so they take a lot longer to recover. An estimated 25% of the world's untouched forests are located in Russia. Sadly, these forests are also at high risk of fire, with over 2,000 miles of woodland lost each year to the blazes. Mexico is also seeing rapid loss of its tropical forests, often to avocados. Now, even though this is agroforestry, the loss of native habitat is threatening many endemic species, including the monarch butterfly. Papua New Guinea is increasingly threatened by logging and palm oil. Sudan has seen 500 miles of trees cut down for home cooking and heating, among other industry threats. Nigeria, which was once a vast land covered in forests, today has only around 6% left due to the use of wood for cooking and heating. The rates at which Nigeria is losing its forest is one of the highest in the world. 
Now, Vietnam has the second highest rate of deforestation of primary forests in the world, second only to Nigeria. Other Southeast Asian countries where major deforestation is ongoing are Cambodia and Laos, which makes sense. They're bordering right next to Vietnam. The most common pressures causing deforestation and severe forest degradation are agriculture, unsustainable forest management, which I mean can be defined as by a number of different things, mining, infrastructure projects, and increased fire incidents and intensity. Now, though it's easy to point out that many of the countries with the highest rates of deforestation in the last few years are generally lower income regions as part of the global south, for example, Nigeria, Indonesia, and North Korea have the world's current highest rates of deforestation, and that China and the United States have the lowest, it's worth pointing out that 90% of the continental United States indigenous forests has been removed since the 1600s. China and Europe have also removed the vast majority of their forests over the last hundred years. They simply cut down their forests a long time ago and are finally realizing the negative side effects. These regions also represent some of the largest markets for imported timber and so in many ways are actually driving the deforestation in other areas. It's worth knowing too that as a general rule, the planet's forests are being cut down at a rate about even with population growth. So if it's not always just man-made causes for deforestation, let's talk about some of the other culprits, namely forest fires. Now, as I said before, the Amazon is the most biodiverse ecosystem on land, and climate change and deforestation are really putting that richness at risk. Unlike coniferous forests in other areas of the world, such as the western U.S., the Amazon and other tropical rainforests didn't evolve as fire ecologies, and the bark and foliage of the trees there can't withstand a serious burn like many of the trees of those other regions. The 84% increase in fires from last year, due mainly to man-made fires, seems to be caused by direct policy changes since Brazil's recent elections. In other places, the causes are not as well known. For example, in the last few months, Australia's fires have seen 14.7 million acres burned, with drought and high prolonged temperatures seeming to be the main culprits. The scary part being that weather extremes like this are predicted to increase, of course, in the years to come. In the United States, as we all know, California's fires have been the point of scrutiny and speculation for over a decade now. Though 2019 was not as devastating as the previous two years, California has seen more than 20 million acres burned since 2017 alone. In this case, though extreme weather conditions and drought have played a factor, many people are looking at the way fires have been increasingly suppressed in the last few decades and claim that regular controlled burning, which native people in the area have been known to practice since long before European settlers, would decrease the fuel load and prevent larger uncontrolled and devastating burns. There's a fantastic talk by Paul Hesberg that explains this in much more detail in the resource portion of the show notes that I highly recommend, as well as a previous interview that I did with Eric Olson where he talks about the sustainable management of fire ecologies. Ultimately, forest fires have quite a few factors that make their control difficult. Undoubtedly, humans are behind the most severe and damaging of them. 
Between incentive programs that encourage active burning for uh, freeing up space for agriculture, short-sighted management practices that create the conditions for huge uncontrollable fires, or even the climactic impact that our industries have on irregular weather patterns and warmer temperatures, we need to take a hard look not only at the effect that these actions are having, but the legacy that this destruction will leave behind for generations to come. Now it sounds like there is some good news in all of this mess. For the first time in decades, some areas of the world have seen a net gain in forest cover. Forest restoration is still the best climate change solution that we have available today and that is scalable. Major reforestation programs around the world are more important now than ever. The Global Tree Restoration Potential Report found that there is enough suitable land to increase the world's forest cover by one-third without affecting existing cities or agricultural land. However, the amount of suitable land area diminishes as global temperatures rise. For example, even if global warming is limited to a 1.5 degree rise in Celsius, the area available for forest restoration could be reduced by a fifth by 2050 because it would simply be too warm for certain tropical forests. It turns out that more than half the potential to restore trees by this criteria can be found actually in just six countries. The first being Russia, with 151 million hectares of non-disruptive reforestation potential, the USA with 103 million, Canada with 78 million, Australia with 58, Brazil with 50, and China with 40. Those countries have so much potential because they've already removed so much of their existing forests. Now, as far as the top tropical forest restoration hotspots go, all the major ones are actually in Africa, with Rwanda, Uganda, Burundi, Togo, South Sudan, and Madagascar topping the list. Since so much land has been degraded due to extractive agricultural practices spreading around the world, reforesting some of the marginal cropland and pasture lands could bring great opportunities to regenerate that land and restore the diversity of species at low cost and low risk. There's also a whole range of benefits to local people that come from forests, both economically, socially, and of course health-wise. An ecological economic study found that degraded ecosystems cost world agriculture 6.3 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars a year. Research in Latin America and Africa shows that every dollar you spend on forest restoration means up to 7 to $30 in benefits. Unfortunately, instead of investing in ecosystem regeneration, around the world, industry and governments are subsidizing things like logging and annual crop agriculture that lead to native forests being cut and not subsidizing or protecting the forests that are being lost. Facts like that used to make me think of developing countries and other parts of the world that are slashing tropical rainforests or cattle ranches, uh, palm oil or soy plantations, whatever. But it's a big problem in North America as well. An example that I read pointed to the case of North Carolina, which is home to some of the most biodiverse forests in the continental United States. There they give landowners property tax breaks to sell their forests for logging, but there's no incentive to conserve them. It turns out that we're not even at the point of arguing for incentivizing forests, we're still struggling not to encourage their destruction. Now, while of course restoration projects are incredibly important, there's still vital importance in protecting existing forests and of course phasing out fossil fuels. For as much ecosystem service potential as new forests have, 
they would still take decades to mature, with most of their effects only coming on gradually. Now, before I go and give all the carbon capture credit to forests, I have to mention grasslands, because I know a lot of very informed people listen to this show, and in order to avoid getting a lot of mail and comments from them, I need to point out that grasslands, in fact, have a greater potential for carbon sequestration than forests if managed correctly. Now, this comes as a surprise to a lot of people because we don't think of grasslands being nearly as lush or vegetated. But here's how it was explained to me so that I finally understood. Think of forests like a snapshot of decades, if not centuries, of carbon capture. You see it all at once up in the canopies, these massive trunks. Grasslands, however, usually show the carbon capture of a few weeks or months only, because they're constantly being eaten and trampled down where they decompose and turn into soil or manure, again, if naturally managed. Since they can go through this growth and dieback cycle multiple times a year, they can account for more net growth and soil building than an old growth forest which is not growing as vigorously. In some cases, Reforestation projects are planned to be installed in what would naturally be grassland, and while a forest is a better option than an industrial farm, grasslands are also critically endangered ecosystems and their preservation and regeneration should be considered just as important as forests in the correct context. Joseph Veldman of Iowa State University and his colleagues in an article for Bioscience made the argument that forest and tree-focused environmental policies and conservation initiatives have potentially dire ecological consequences for undervalued ecosystems, such as grasslands, savannas, and open canopy woodlands. So long as carbon stored in trees is valued above other ecosystem services, the conservation values of grassy biomes will remain threatened by agricultural conversion, fire exclusion, and ill-placed tree planting. So it seems the solution is obvious, right? We should just support reforestation programs and start planting trees right away. The more the better, no? Well, it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than just planting trees everywhere we can. The majority of reforestation projects are centered around planting monoculture plantations of commercially marketable species, primarily for lumber. These programs are responsible for most of the forest gain in the US and China, in the last handful of years, and these timber plantations come with a lot of their own risks. Monoculture plantings of trees, just like any other crop, are devastating for biodiversity and animal habitat. They also are very susceptible to pests and diseases, like in the case of the Japanese beetle kill zones in the western US. Since they're often occupied by fir and pine species planted as close together as possible, they can also create a major fire risk. Because these plantations are at odds with nature, they also require a lot of management and resources to maintain. Though they look very green and lush from a distance, and they do serve a few ecological functions like soil retention, they're just as unsustainable as any other industrial farming method. I've even heard them referred to by members of the permaculture community as green deserts. So even the most well-intentioned reforestation programs from nonprofits have often been ineffective. Many of them start out by setting lofty goals and set out to plant trees in order to meet arbitrary numbers and quarterly targets. Trees planted are not equal to trees grown. Many species actually take a minimum of three years to become established, or even more, with high rates of failure before that time. 
It's important to keep track of trees over time and make sure that they're surviving and multiplying. In a few cases, poor understanding of the ecosystems which we're trying to reforest can lead to unintended consequences once the trees have been planted. Take, for example, China's Green Wall Initiative, a massive reforestation belt along the southern edge of the Gobi Desert which was planted to stop the advancement of desertification, which has been encroaching rapidly for decades. Now, though the concept was sound, the trees that were planted were mostly fast-growing non-native species, and once established, they began to drink up so much water with their deep roots that the water table has now dropped to dangerous levels in those areas. Or take, for example, Japan after World War II. During the war, huge swaths of forested countryside were cut down to provide energy for Japan's war efforts. After the war, there was a huge demand for timber, mostly to aid in reconstruction, which resulted in even more forest loss. When the government finally began reforesting, it did so in a way that prioritized commodities over biodiversity. And today the country is paying a steep price, both ecologically and financially. An astounding 44% of Japan's total forest cover was converted to one or two species forest plantations. And as a result, they have a whole countryside devoid of biodiversity. Natural reforestation can be difficult, though, in a lot of areas. New forests take time to get established. Different tree species grow at different rates, with natural forest trees growing far more slowly than plantation trees, such as pine and eucalypts. Trees also grow at different rates in different climates. Carbon accumulation also slows to zero net gain as the trees mature. To continue storing carbon, plantations have to be felled and replanted, and the wood has to be stored so the accumulated carbon isn't lost to the atmosphere, like when burning firewood. Ultimately, though, no matter how many trees we plant, we still need to limit emissions in order to stop climate change. So, if many of our current reforestation efforts are falling short, what does it really take to regenerate a native forest? Well, according to a study focusing on the Brazilian Atlantic forest, which is a unique ecosystem in itself, certain aspects can return surprisingly quickly, as soon as 65 years. But for the landscape to truly regain its native identity, it would likely take a lot longer, up to 4,000 years. So animals are very important to the successful regeneration of cleared areas. Typically, 80% of the tree species in a mature tropical rainforest are animal dispersed. The researchers found that it took just 65 years for a forest to recover to this level. Another indication of forest regeneration is the existence of a high proportion of shade-loving trees. This is because immediately after trees are felled, the land tends to be repopulated by what are called opportunistic species that really thrive in the sunlight. Shade lovers take considerably longer to find their way back into the forest, about 160 years. It's recovering the proportion of native species that are unique to the original forest which takes the longest time, and the model predicts that this will take up to 4,000 years. Native species that are unique to the Atlantic forest in Brazil have been isolated over the years into separate plots of forest due to deforestation. As a result, their seeds take a long time to disperse to the few protected areas that still remain. If endemic species do not germinate and grow, the forest cannot fully recover. 
Ensuring healthy genetic diversity requires drawing from as wide a genetic pool as possible. And it also requires creating physical connections for travel that allow the exchange of genetic information across the landscape. In practice, creating corridors of habitat between isolated islands of intact and restored ecosystem restores this connectivity. So to use a different ecology as an example, like in the case of the west coast of the U.S., restoration may actually mean removing trees from the landscape. Future foresters, according to Forest Ecology and Management, should try first evaluating the potential for natural regeneration and then gradually eliminating barriers for that. This may turn out to be a valuable lesson for the mission of regrowing the global forest. Sometimes it's less a perspective of taking action than of removing obstacles and just getting out of the way. So one way to restore function is to create disturbance regimes or episodes of temporary environmental change that encourage historical succession patterns. The trouble is that restoring the vegetation is only one part of the puzzle. Animals, insects, bacteria, fungi, and others all play a crucial role in the resilience of an ecosystem. Even one missing element can throw the whole system off of balance. So there are a lot of options and solutions not only for correct reforestation methods, but how to also accelerate the process. And though a lot of the research up until now that I've talked about is a little bit grim, let's start to explore what I learned through the interviews throughout this series and talk about real solutions and examples of people doing an excellent job and going beyond what the norm is for reforestation and agroforestry. So I started off the series with three interviews with similar context. All of the people that I talked to owned property in the tropical cloud forest regions of their countries, and all of them are aiming to reforest the majority of their land. Now, cloud forests are tropical rainforests that are at higher elevation and are rare and increasingly endangered ecosystems. They're also the most biodiverse forests in the world. The first two interviews are with friends of mine whose properties I had the pleasure of visiting in person. It's worth hearing them all the way through to get a good idea of the differences in their approaches, but all of them have taken the time to learn and observe their ecosystems in depth, and their insights were really valuable. The first episode is an interview that I did on site with my friend Jairo. Now, I'd been looking forward to publishing this episode since I went to visit Teoapa Farms in Hico, a small and beautiful historic town in northern Veracruz, Mexico. Now, I went there to volunteer and learn about the farm and forest regeneration project, and I was blown away by the natural beauty of the cloud forests around the town and the story of how Jairo and his family came to acquire the land with a vision of letting nature take over and reestablish the native forest passively. Now, we planted some fruit trees uh, quite a way from the beginning, and uh, they were not successful. They just didn't get the care they were required, like in terms of manuring or pruning or protecting them from foraging animals. And I realized that nature knows what to do to heal itself. And in terms of reforestation in this region specifically, I don't think there's a more effective way or inexpensive at it than letting it be and letting it do it so yes reintroduce some trees that you're interested in especially if you want to harvest eventually but that's about it 
I later talked to Alex Kronick, a good friend of mine and co-owner of Cooba Farms, who has over 200 acres of cloud forest in the highlands of Guatemala and who's been taking a very different and more active approach to reforestation of native species on his land. And he took the time to tell me a little bit about how he propagates native trees and takes care of them to make sure that they get established and continue to reproduce. So our nurseries basically we're not buying trees and we're not buying seed. That's what happens most of the time is most people are planting trees that are not from the area or are reforesting with non-native species. Um they're more like species that you can take advantage of like lumber species and therefore you disrupt a little bit uh if not a lot the um, the system Uh so the idea is we're planting special species of the area where we're getting our own seed from our forests we're making our own nurseries and fortunately the species that we have in our native forests there which are cloud forests were at 2100 meters elevation so i guess not sure what that is in feet but i'm guessing it's like 8000 feet or something like that maybe yeah something like that but basically um the species that we have in that native forest are species that put water into the ground and not suck water out of the ground like eucalyptus or pine forests and cypress which that's what most people plant in this area but unfortunately they're great lumber but they instead of putting water in the ground they're drying the ground up and it's a very um basic um bio, bio biodiversity that comes out of those um species in in that area because those are great trees from even much higher elevation in areas where there's less biodiversity so those would do well but in our area which is a cloud forest which has lots of biodiversity if you plant a monocrop of those trees you you get rid of too many um too many uh, species so it's better to plant the local ones which re- retain more variety now a bit more similar to alex's approach of taking a more active role in planting trees kristen crash also aspires to produce high quality cacao and other agroforestry products on her land and the hectares that she manages around her place at the foothills of the andes in peru she spoke to me about how long the forest would need to recover without human intervention there are places in the world that are not going to rewild themselves i mean we have 3 hectares that we have originally bought we now have um 15 hectares under our management because we we've, we've sold land to some interested parties but there's a we have a whole i'd say like a hectare of land on the other side of our spring our estero that we haven't touched in 3 years and it is a sea of grass all over it is a freaking green desert i mean it is nothing is going to grow there unless we actively go over there and plant some trees i mean it is just going to be sad i mean it's like and the thing is is okay you know if the land is left alone if the land is left alone for 100 years eventually some pioneers will spring up like these tough scrubby bushes that could grow anywhere some of them will eventually start to spring up 9 or 10 years later they'll die and fall over 
they'll leave a little bit of a clearing. Maybe a bird will fly over and poop out some seeds and maybe the seeds will hit that little clear spot and maybe some of those seeds will germinate and maybe some of those seeds will grow into mature trees. But that's a lot of maybes and that's a very long time. Yeah, the successional models you know? <laughs> are severely stunted in that area, right? You know, and, and so what, what I want to emphasize is that, you know, rewilding land is... It's, it's not like you're running around at a music festival with flowers in your hair, like, well, I'm rewilding. Like, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't, because humans have been so greedy, it, it's not going to happen that way. Like, I'm sort of a little bit more proactive. It's like, look, we made this mess. And if I step in, and I'm not claiming to be, you know, Mother Nature with the wisdom of Mother Nature, but I can see what's going on here. And if I help, if I can jumpstart this process and I can, you know, plant some baby trees and clean around them and give them a jumpstart, in 50, I mean, things grow fast down here. In 15 years, I can reforest this pasture. It will take nature 150 years to do the same thing. And you know what? In the meantime, like, I will die. And someone else can buy this land who doesn't have my ideas and let it go back to being a pasture or put in some agro-industrial oil palm farm or something else. So I think that where we have the, the means to do it and the will to do it and the, the strength to do it, I think we need to do it while we can. After speaking with my friends in the cloud forests of Central and South America, I spoke to James Potter, who's a spokesman for the Inga Foundation, an NGO that promotes the integration of Inga tree alley cropping with common cash cropping practices to hopefully eliminate the practice of slash and burn on the land. James helped me to understand the motivations and patterns of slash and burn agriculture and how alley cropping can help to improve the soil health, crop yields, and much more. Well, the thing about slash and burn, burn agriculture uh, is that it's a subsistence farming method. This is really just a method of agriculture that people use to grow basic food crops for themselves uh, and for their families. Um, it's essentially a decision to eat or, or, or not to eat. Um, and when people are put into that situation, they burn a few acres of uh, fertile rainforest uh, on which to grow their crops. Uh, and for about a year, the uh, nutrients from the soil and from the burning process um, feeds their crops. The problem is, is that slash and burn agriculture is not a sustainable, nor environmentally, nor ecologically friendly method of agriculture. Not only does it contribute billions of tons of carbon to the atmosphere, um, but uh, because the soil fertility doesn't last, um, people's crops fail uh, subsequently. And it forces subsistence farmers uh, to depend on this uh, unsustainable system of agriculture to keep clearing uh, new acres of rainforest every few years just to survive, uh, which in turn, it's just this uh, vicious cycle uh, of destruction and devastation on a global scale. It's not just uh, practiced uh, in places like Honduras, where Dr. Hans is doing his work, but it's practiced in the, in, uh, the tropics all over the world. And what the Inga Foundation really seeks to do is it seeks to provide these subsistence farmers uh, with an alternative and a sustainable alternative uh, that will raise them and their families out of poverty and to give them 
uh, crops year after year without having to slash and burn. So after talking about how many tree planting initiatives are often ineffective and sometimes even destructive, I wanted to find an example of one that really exemplifies healthy native forest restoration. There's a whole lot of talk these days over buzzwords like eco-entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and the like. But when I see tangible examples of companies motivated to improve the systems we already rely on, I have hope that it can be more than just a fad. Ecosia is a search engine that directs most of its profits to tree planting initiatives around the world, and their lead tree planting officer, Peter Van Midwood, explained to me how their projects differ from conventional tree plantations and monoculture plantings. So for me, planting monocultures of eucalyptus or monocultures of pine trees has nothing to do with reforestation. These are, these are tree plantations. I think even tree plantations, in particular, actually, when, I, when they serve smallholders, um, can have their role. I have to be very careful here because I'm really not pointing at the large kind of uh, more than a couple of hectares uh, um, uh, yeah, monoculture sites. But overall, uh, Ecosia simply doesn't allow it in its programs. So if someone comes with that proposal, and I had that a number of times, where they want to plant eucalyptus and pine trees, um, we simply reject it. We want our partners to plant uh, native tree species from the region, and we allow for 10% exotics. And the 10% exotics are normally the smallholder woodlots that I just talked about or, sure. uh, you know, fruit trees in uh, agroforestry systems. But the majority has to be native and from the region. And this is, this is a knockout criterion for us. So again, I've had proposals where people wanted to do different and we didn't accept it. Um, there is, we have a project, uh, this is actually in Peru. They work in the high Andes and they found it very difficult in their first year to, to get exactly to this uh, 90% uh, target um, uh, because the communities there were, were used to planting pines. That's the only thing they had in the nursery. So there we allowed to kind of over the period of three years work towards 90% from 70%. Uh, but it's the only exception I can think of. So for the rest, we want, we want native trees uh, to be planted. Um, and this is also what is needed, you know. I think... The, 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 these, these are the, the most unlucky of all the trees in the world. You know, they get, they get cut down every day at an enormous rate because their, their timber is valuable or because they apparently stand in the way for soy or, uh, or palm oil plantations. And, and, and also no one is actually, there's not many organizations having them in the nurseries because they don't have very much of commercial value. Yet, for the local ecosystem, they are this, this, the skeleton. They're, you know, forests are the most diverse. You know, most of the, the, the biodiversity on the planet lives in forests. So, and trees play a very important role of that. Uh, yet we're cutting them at an enormous rate and no one has the expertise on how to grow them back. Um, so I really want Ecosia to be leading in this. And um, we, we have... And um, uh, our project in Brazil, in the Mata Atlantica, is one of the biggest contributors to this. But we're planting, uh, I think by now, over 500 native tree species all over the world. Um, and and that is, that's a principal point that we want. We want our money to be used for this kind of things. And if people don't want this, fair enough, then we go somewhere else. Um, but it's, it's, 
there's also something about actually getting the capacity to understand how we can restore some of these ecosystems that we have been destroying. There's not there's not much people who know that, and it takes time to 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 understand how you do it. Um, for me, planting monoculture eucalyptus and pine is a whole different game. You know, really, the only thing these these systems have in common is the fact that both are tree based. But it for me, a monoculture plantation is nothing more than uh, you know uh, an, uh, an agricultural land with uh, with corn. You know, it's a monoculture crop used for human production, um, and um, uh, it's it's not the future. You know, it doesn't make sense. They destroy soils. They use too much water, um, and <laughs> we 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 even have now the problem that most of the expertise when it comes to tree planting in this world is for this kind of uh, uh, systems. So many of the um, uh, the international pledges that there are about restoration are actually thinking about you know oh uh, more plantations of pine and eucalyptus. That has, that's nothing to do with reforestation. Um, so we, we are very principled about this. We also want to explore better ways how native tree species can be used. But there's also, we need a lot of more capacity in this world on how to restore them. And um, yeah, it's more difficult, you know. In, 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 this, in, it means that everywhere where you work, whether it's in the Mata Atlantica, whether it is in, in Burkina Faso, whether it's in Madagascar, whether it's in Indonesia, you'll have to do with different tree species that need different treatment to grow. There's no one size fits all. Um, so you need local partners that understand that, and they have to tell the younger guy in the nursery how to do it, and they have to tell the other guy how to do it. Um, but this way we are helping to build up this capacity which we're going to need very soon on a very large scale uh, as we can see uh, you know everyone wants to plant trees today uh, there's hardly anyone really knowing what he's talking about and if we really become serious about these things we're really going to need people that can do this native restoration uh, at a large scale and then i mean with many many smallholders involved uh, thinking smartly about where in the landscape we need to bring forest back to create corridors, and how can I breathe my 25 native species in the nursery? I also got the chance to speak with Peter Kahn, a professor of biochemistry at Rutgers University, who, along with a team of colleagues, wrote a powerful article on how the world might transition to perennial crop agriculture and the importance of making the transition as soon as possible. Though this includes many non-tree species, Peter explained how mimicking healthy natural ecosystems is key to restoring the viability of large-scale agriculture. Well, there are a, a whole range of things uh, are in progress in various parts of the world. You've undoubtedly heard about permaculture, um, where pioneering work has been occurring anywhere from Australia through this country into Europe. Um, in um, Salina, Kansas, there's a place called the Land Institute, which is trying to develop perennial grains that can be planted once and harvested thereafter, year after year after year. But they want to do this in mixed culture, um, in which they have multiple species growing, mimicking the ecology of the, um, of the American prairie. That was an ecological arrangement that was stable for thousands of years. And if that could be mimicked in a way that produced enough grain to feed people, um, that would be one part of a perennial plant solution. They are at the point now where they have a perennial uh, grain called Kernza, K-E-R-N-Z-A, which actually makes a very good flour. 
from, and they're in the process of commercializing it. Where they're going next with that is to add additional species uh, so that they have the mixed um, species agricultural crop that they are aiming for. It's a very good operation. So that's one instance. Another describes the fact that, well, some of its prongs describe the fact that smaller farms produce more calories per acre than um, large farms do. Large farms produce more calories per man hour worked. That's because of all the automation that goes into them. Automation which compacts the soil, which is destructive of the soil fertility and so forth. But small farms with a wide variety of crops and what has come to be called um, restoration agriculture um, offers the possibility that farmers can number one, make a living, and number two, produce enough to feed a lot of people. The more of that that is encouraged, the better. To do it, there will be political problems that will have to be overcome, but that's a somewhat different subject. Now, there are many parts of the world where climate, soil, or rainfall present a real challenge to reforestation efforts. So I caught up with Neil Spackman for a second time on this show to hear from his experience on regreening the desert in Saudi Arabia and his strategy for making the most of the tiny amount of annual rainfall there. And so on, on this 100-acre site that we had, which is about, you know, 70, 60, 70% of it is mountains, and, you know, a third or so is the, the floodplain. So it's at least a two-to-one ratio of runoff to catchment. But we used up 20,000 cubic meters in irrigation to get our savanna system going. And we caught, you know, between 50,000 cubic meters in that same period. So we, we've got at least two times more water going into the ground than we're taking out. Um, and now that we're not irrigating anymore, we cut the irrigation in 2016. Now it's just there's a greater percentage of that water, of that rainfall, that is effective instead of running off and evaporating or, or hitting the sea. One of my favorite agricultural gurus who I always look to for practical and no-nonsense advice is Darren Doherty. Now, Darren is the founder of the Regrarians platform and co-author of the Regrarians handbook, for which he just released a new chapter on forestry. I caught up with him again to ask how to start planting a new orchard and how to start planting trees cheaply to avoid the high initial cost of buying trees. All right, let's just follow the 80-20 rule. Um, stick with what you know, will, what, is, what are most likely to be the best bet species and maybe just do 10 or 20% which are, the, which are the experiments. If you go the other way around, well, then, you know, that's just too innovative on a whole range of levels. So um, you've got to cover some your bases first. Well, yeah, you've got it. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking at doing this commercially, I mean, you don't, you know, if you run it, if you start a new business, generally, you don't go and um, start with, a, with, with 80% of what you're doing is being, being, um, being unlikely, well, a high chance of not working. You maybe go out there with 5% or 2% or something, right? If you're going to give yourself any chance of success, probably. And really, it's no different in this sort of stuff. So I'm. Um, there's lots of different techniques for being able to 
um, grow a lot of trees in a small space. I mean, some people get old um, fruit bins, you know, for, and uh, I know people like uh, oh, was, oh, my friend uh, Harry, Harry uh, Green, who's um, part of the Propagate uh, Ventures group. Um, he was growing chestnuts and uh, I think, uh, what's his name, um, Grant Schultz of Versaland years ago. He was, you know, getting an old wooden fruit bin or a, um, an IBC or something like that filling it up with some soil and just some potting soil and then putting a whole lot of acorns or chestnuts in there and overstocking the system so that you've got this above ground bare root nursery where you can grow a two foot deep root system and a really healthy plant in a really small amount of area. I mean, that sort of stuff's really easy to do and you can do that with fruit trees and all sorts of things. Um, But then you've got stuff that has to be grown with smaller seed and perhaps needs something to go in a container well there's lots of different containers that are out there the type of containers that are fused together into a number of cells and you know have have root system or they have uh, um, you know they're between four to eight inches um, deep or you know uh, you know between 100 to 200 millimeters um, deep and they have a hole at the bottom which um, and which you can suspend on some mesh so the plants that you grow in there can, um, when the roots get down, they air prune and they don't. The roots don't come back up like a J inside of the pot. And right. there's those sorts of things. Like you can generally get potting mix. You know, if you live in the US, for example, go to Home Depot. The potting mix there is not great, but it's not that bad either. Um, and you can get away with that, um, or you can go to you know go to your local nursery supply or whatever. You can get, you can, if you want to go a bit further, you can usually in the nursery trade, you can buy one cubic meter or one cubic yard blocks of potting mix, which is a really economic way of buying it as opposed yeah, to yeah. buying those A lot less waste bags. too, all those plastic bags. A lot yeah. less, yeah all, that, yeah, all of that stuff. So they've often got, you know, you can take the bags back and all that sort of stuff. So that sort of thing, really great. Um, or of course, you can go and make your own if you, if you really can. But the type of containerized systems are really good. Um, and then you just start small. I mean, I, we had a nursery way back when. We just used um, waxed milk, milk um, cartons, yeah, which we put a couple of holes in. And we put them into um, borrowed um, milk crates because everyone borrows milk crates, as we realize. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> we put those into a milk crate and I'd put an acorn in each one. And it was a nice, you know, it's nearly a foot deep. And I suspended those up so that as the, as the roots came down, they didn't J inside. I've got a very cheap, big container. And I go, I used to give them away and sell them. And there's trees all over. There's oak trees all over the place, cork oaks and holm oaks and turkey oaks and all sorts of different oaks that I used to grow that I can now, now visit and uh, be, be in wonder about. I've also been a big fan of Stefan Subkowiak's work and videos on running a permaculture orchard. He's developed simple and innovative strategies of creating a holistic ecosystem around a profitable orchard enterprise that includes a wide variety of species, natural soil building techniques, pest management, and much more. Among the many topics that we covered, I also asked him about what advice he would give to people who are just starting out and are overwhelmed by the tasks involved in starting an orchard. I, I like to say just start. <laughs> That's really a, a, a mantra that I, I like to push because 
if you think, well, I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't have the land and I don't have, and you put all kinds of reasons why you can't, while just focus on, I say, start with two trios. You say, well, I, you know, I'm living in a suburb or I'm living in the city and I don't have much room. Do you have room for six trees? And it may be just six shrubs. You can do trios with shrubs. And so just start, get some trees in, get two trios because two trios work really well. If you just put in three trees, then none of the trees may have the ability to get pollinated and therefore you'll think, well, it doesn't produce. Well, it doesn't produce because you only have one of each of the trees. So two trios guarantees that you'll have, well, doesn't guarantee, but it makes it far more likely that you'll have good pollination and you'll have a good start. And you'll learn just as much with two trios as you would with 200 trees. So that's the key is if you can start, and those of you who are listening who are further south, you still have a planting season. You may still be able to plant where the ground is totally frozen here and the planting season is well over. But if you can start this fall, even this weekend, go out and just just put in six trees, start with that, and then gradually you'll diversify, add a couple of shrubs per each tree and fruiting shrubs. So you'll have your collection. And what I like to say is if you start that way, now that's not a huge investment, putting in six trees and, a, and let's say 12 shrubs and company that by some perennials, you may put in for $500. You say, well, you know, that's a lot of money. Well, $500 is, is really not a lot of money compared to putting in an orchard of a few hundred trees. But when you have these six trees going and the shrubs underneath and some perennials, in two years, the plants that really are happy, and I like to say happy because a plant that's happy will double every year. So in two years, you will probably get to a point where you can multiply your existing plants by 10. And that's where it gets interesting. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, in two years, you have plenty of time to learn how. And so you'll be able to do some propagation. You'll be able to learn about taking cuttings. If you check out my YouTube channel, I got some nice little videos on propagating shrubs and a couple of easy techniques. And so those are ways that you can get started very relatively inexpensive. And then if you say, well, it'll give you the opportunity to, to grow. So if you say, well, I only put in two trios. Well, what's 10 times that? That's 12 trios. And then from there, so 12 trios times six, you're up to 72 trees. And then you can grow by another 10 times in another two years. So it's that kind of multiplication. You say, well, all I have room for is six trees and that's where I want to stay. Well, great. Then you can get started and have your yard producing uh, in just a few years with two trios. So it's really that whole issue of starting. And, and I know, I mean, I'm talking to you about it, but I know because I had the dream and the idea of doing it, but I had this monoculture orchard and it really kept me for quite a few years from starting to replant the orchard the way I wanted. So just start. I should have started years ago with a lot less rather than trying to put in right away 
you know, we put in one acre and then we put in uh, two and three and a half acres. So it, it's, it's a lot more to think in that scale. While you could start much smaller and then you'll, at least if you start, you'll have the fruit that much earlier. And it's the time element that's really critical because the longer you delay, the longer you won't get to taste the fruit of your work. And that's right. where the change really happens. When you start to harvest, then you start to go, oh my gosh, the first year we harvested a few sweet cherries, I thought, why didn't I put in 50? <laughs> because it takes a few years for them to produce. And then when they did, I thought, wow, one tree, the birds come in, I eat everything. <laughs> so that's that's another issue. But yeah, I thought I should have put in more. And so, okay, but at least I learned with that one. And and now I'm planning to put in more. But that's the that's the progression. Just start is so important to it. Now, you'll remember that Peter Kahn was talking about the importance of restoration agriculture and the development of a perennial-based food system. And so I caught up with Mark Shepard, one of the most prominent voices of restoration agriculture, for a second time on this show to help me understand one of the most important preparations that one can do to ensure that their land makes the best use of the water resources available to it. His new book, Water for Any Farm, lays out a detailed plan based on the key line system on how to shape the landscape to store and soak water into the soil to ensure that your trees and perennial plants will be more resistant to increasingly extreme rain and drought patterns. Even though southwest Wisconsin gets um, a decent amount of rain, about 30 inches a meter, um, thereabouts of rain per year, there are times when it goes without. It was one year I uh, went completely without rain. On the second year, went almost the whole year without rain. And so I wanted to make sure that we had adequate water stored in ponds and in, in the soil. And uh, another example is, is Middle Tennessee and Kentucky this past calendar year, 2019, two times the normal rainfall amount, like 80 inches, somewhat 80 inches of rain. Uh, however, in the middle of this year where they're getting twice the annual rainfall, they had the longest dry spell in history. And so they actually had the biggest drought ever, even though they had twice the rain. Well, so if we're having twice the rain and having these long dry spells, the water was there to, for continued agricultural production if it was captured, uh, delivered to a place, stored, soaked into the soil, etc. In the last interview in this series, I spoke to Shubendu Sherma, an innovative formal industrial engineer who has dedicated his life and skill set to planting native forests with an accelerated strategy. His popular TED Talk caught my interest years ago where he outlines the Miyawaki method that his company A-Forest uses to regenerate mature native forests in record time, even in some of the most difficult places to reestablish a forest. So the basic theory on which Miyawaki method works is called the theory of potential natural vegetation, PNV. The theory says that if a piece of land is deprived from human intervention, naturally a forest will come back on it. The first Grasses will come, then small shrubs, then trees which are pioneers, pioneer species, soft wood, fast-growing trees. And then eventually trees which are slow-growing like oak, uh, they will start to appear and make a system which will keep on regenerating itself. That 
ecology won't change until probably the next ice age. This group of trees or group of species is called the climax forest species. So the first step we have to do is identify the potential natural vegetation of a particular place, segregate the climax forest species, and then plant a climax forest using the seedlings of seeds collected from another climax forest. So basically we are mimicking nature, but we are skipping the steps in which it will lead to climax forest finally, maybe after 200 years. So we are taking what would be the result of natural succession after 200 years and planting it on day one and creating a micro environment where the trees are at the same density at which they occur in the forest, like three to five seed, three to five plants per square meter. And that's incredibly dense compared to the way plantations happen or gardening happens. So this is another radical difference from uh, uh, conventional plantation that we plant super dense, so dense that you can't even walk into a Miyawaki forest. But that's exactly how the way a natural forest would be, so dense that you can't even walk into it because of the dense vegetation under the canopy of big trees. So by planting densely, by planting only climax forest species of potential natural vegetation, and by mimicking nature in a way that we make our soil as healthy and fertile as soil of a natural forest. It smells like a natural forest right on day one when we plant the forest. So we make sure that our, our soil is good at perforation of roots, perforation of water. Uh, it can retain the water. It can absorb it like a sponge. It's full of uh, microbial life in it and it facilitates microbial life. It facilitates spreading of fungi throughout the network of roots. And by doing all these things, sometimes we even reintroduce microbes directly into the soil. By doing all this, by creating this micro environment, which is forest-like, we are able to create a forest, a self-sustaining forest in just two to three years, which keeps on growing itself once, even after we stop maintaining it, and within 10 years, it starts to look like as if it is a 100-year-old forest. All of the interviews in this series covered very different approaches to reforestation. Some with the goal of native forest regeneration, others focusing on healthy polyculture orchards and profitable species, while others are trying to integrate a mix of the two. Ultimately, I learned so much from this project, not only about how some people, both amateurs and experts, are tackling the problem, but that we already have solutions and positive models to follow to combat the problems outlined in the research at the beginning of this episode. The problem of deforestation and poor reforestation projects are not coming from a lack of information or a lack of good examples to follow. The bigger questions that will determine the future of our forests, and all of our precious ecosystems for that matter, are whether we can implement these methods in time to deter the worst effects of climate change, biodiversity loss, and mass extinction. Before we go, there are a few questions that I would love to hear from you listeners about to understand how you think about these topics and get some ideas that perhaps I hadn't considered. For one, do you think that agroforestry systems can really feed the whole world? What percentage of your diet would you be willing to replace with tree and perennial plant foods? And in your opinion, do tree and perennial foods offer enough nutrition and calories 
for the space that they occupy to meet the world's food needs? Do they have enough nutrition to replace many of the meat and animal products that many of us eat in excess? What priority should reforestation be given in land management policy? For example, would you like to see tax breaks or subsidies offered to forestry programs in your country? Or do you think it would be better if these projects continue to be bootstrapped by nonprofits and private businesses? I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts and opinions on these questions and any other thoughts, ideas, or even critiques of the information presented here. You can contact me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com, through the contact page on our website, or by leaving comments below. I'd especially like to hear if you enjoy these special episodes, so I'll know to make them more often or less. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.